Good morning. My pleasure to be here again. And um, I like to think that this morning um, my theme is about um, what I believe is when we're born that it's an invitation to explore the fullness of being human, of what that means to be a spirit in this flesh. And so uh, from Moments of Grace, which I wrote, I'm going to read an anecdote about uh, a little bit, something that happened to me that was an exploration in my own humanity. There is something to be said about giving with a cheerful heart. Perhaps it is another state of being that opens up the channel through which good flows back to us. One afternoon, as I sat in my car talking with a friend, a homeless man walked up to my window. I rolled down the window a little, and he said something like, can you help me out today? I was irritated by the intrusion on our conversation. I reached down to the console and picked up a dime, the only coin there, and gave it to the man without even looking at him. I was clearly showing him by my body language that I just wanted him to get lost. To my surprise, the man refused the coin. He put up his hand and waved it away as if to say, no, thank you. I kind of shrugged, went on with my conversation, and thought little of the exchange. The next afternoon, I was sitting on a park bench at lunchtime waiting for someone I was to interview when I noticed out of the corner of my eye another homeless person, a young man who looked to be in his mid-twenties. My first thought was, don't walk over here. Then I decided to change my thought. If he comes, I'm going to talk to him like he is just another person, not like he is homeless. I didn't want anything in my manner to make him think I considered him any different from the next human being. The guy came over, of course. I smiled. He saw my braces and flashed a big smile with the worst-looking mouth I'd ever seen. His teeth were yellow and brown, terribly stained, and he had some kind of thick wire all across them. These aren't braces, he said, laughing. A man punched me. We were arguing. He broke my jaw. I had to get it wired. Sounds painful, I said. Not anymore, he said. That's why I didn't go back to the hospital. You should get it checked, I said, wincing uncontrollably, not only from thoughts of the pain, but also because he smelled pretty bad and because I wanted, to close that wanted him to close that horrible-looking mouth. But I composed myself, remembering my promise. Would you have any money to help me buy lunch? He hesitated a second, then pointing to a vending truck, he added, I'm going over there to buy a hot dog. He was probably used to people thinking he was begging money to buy liquor or drugs. I gave him a dollar. Before he walked away, his personality changed. I believed I could change my life for you, he said, flirting. Don't change for me, change for yourself, I said, quickly slipping into one of my philosophy speeches. <laughs> oh, don't do that to me, he said, serious again. I quickly understood. He just wanted to be a regular guy flirting with a woman. For a split second, I considered how long it must have been since a woman on the street just let him be a regular guy and had not been offended at his come-ons. I gave him the pleasure of a return flirt. I bet you would change for me, I said. He smiled, and as he walked over to the truck, I considered the fact that I had just flirted with a homeless man. <laughs> He bought a sandwich, then I watched him as an elderly man dressed in a dark blue work uniform greeted him. 
When the elderly man, who must have been on his lunch hour, sat on a bench to eat a sandwich, the young homeless man sat with him. I noticed, though, that he did not sit right next to the elderly man, but sat at one end of the bench while the older man sat at the other. I was impressed because it seemed to me the homeless man did this out of respect. He knew that his clothes were dirty and he smelled. I was touched, too, by how comfortable the old man was with the homeless man. The two talked and laughed like old friends. After a while, I saw the guy with the wired mouth point over in my direction as if he were talking about me. The old man looked at me and smiled. Then out of the corner of my eye, I saw the guy with the wired mouth walk over to a bed of flowers, bend down, and pick some of the flowers. I looked up to see him standing in front of me with his hands behind his back. (laughs) Promise not to laugh at me, he said. I would never laugh at you, I said. He pulled the bouquet of flowers from behind his back and handed them to me. This isn't much, he said, stuttering for the first time. You're, you're a nice lady. <clears throat> Thank you, I said, rising to leave, giving up on meeting the person I was to interview. It's not for the dollar, he said. Anybody could give me a dollar. I was pondering these words as I walked away. He must have had second thoughts because he said to himself, though loud enough for me to hear, she'll probably throw them away. I turned back to face him. I would never throw them away. If I didn't want them, I wouldn't have taken them. He winked, and as I crossed the street walking away, he yelled, I'd give up liquor for you, girl. I'll change my ways. I put the small bouquet of flowers in a vase on my desk where they lasted for quite a while. But what will remain with me still longer are the questions and the lessons I asked myself. Did it matter that I gave with a cheerful heart when I gave to the second homeless man? Did the first homeless man, the one at the car window, refuse my money because he felt my contempt? Why on two consecutive days did a homeless man approach me? It seemed divine. So I um, took this um, sermon from the Bible. Um, it's Mel- I know Melissa knows this, but I, for a time I went to... Um, seminary, and then I dropped out. I'm a seminary dropout. Um, And I was at a Presbyterian seminary, but I have spent years also going to various different denominations. Um, I was once married to a Catholic and tried that. I, um, for years, went to Unity. I, um, yeah, I helped start a non-denominational church at one point, and I studied for years also um, A Course in Miracles. So some would say I'm confused, but I would say I know exactly what I'm doing. (laughs) The big guy knows. And so I uh, took this, as I said, from the Bible, and it's from the book of Job. It's Job 19, 23 to 27, and I'm going to read that, and then hopefully... um, offer you some food for thought that you may not have heard before. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself would see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. 
Now, in this scripture, we hear Job speaking to his friends who have gravely disappointed him. And most of us associate Job with patience. Uh, we have referred for, for centuries to the patience of Job, especially when someone exhibits incredible endurance through all kinds of trials and tribulations. Among the many Old Testament examples of patience, Job's story is extreme in the amount of suffering he endured. Job lost all of his children and his wealth in a single day. He then was covered in painful sores, and his wife encouraged him to give up, curse God, and die. His friends falsely accused him of wrongdoing and blamed his troubles on his unrepentant heart. He has every right to be frustrated, even angry. At times he is in such despair, he believes God has forsaken him. We all have had our moments like this, those times when we think we, things just can't get worse. And we wonder how God, the divine spirit, just life, or whatever we might attribute our challenges to could allow us to suffer. How and why? But Job never fully gives up. He patiently waits on God to change his lot. He believes what is happening is God's will, though he does not know why. In the verses I just read, God, Job has a flash of confident faith. He proclaims, I know that my Redeemer lives. He believes one day he will see God with his own eyes. In spite of his suffering, Job still worships the Lord. In fact, he longs for his surge of faith to be written in a book, or better yet, carved in stone. This would be his vindication. His integrity would be established and known forever. Now, scholars actually disagree over what Job meant when he said, Redeemer. There are those who believe he was prophesying about Jesus, the Redeemer, with a capital R. But Jesus would not be born for centuries. So other scholars point out that redeemer with a small r was a common word during Job's time. The Hebrew word translated in most English Bibles as redeemer is the word goel, which means near kinsman who comes to the aid of the family's name, honor, and property. In other places within the Old Testament, the Goel is the avenger of blood, who is expected to even the score when someone has killed a family member. The Goel could purchase loved ones out of slavery. The Goel restores honor, has the responsibility for preserving the family name and property. Job believed his suffering was greater than his flaws. It was undeserved suffering. But who deserves to suffer? Sometimes when we judge, we silently decide who we think deserves to suffer. And in the public forum, we set policies based on who we have judged to be deserving of suffering. Job believes he does not deserve the hand he has been dealt. So he cries out for justice. Perhaps he wanted a goel, a an umpire, or a mediator who could arbitrate between him and God. He needed an advocate to plead his case to God, a redeemer with a small r, who could, would vindicate him in this world. 
A redeemer takes it upon himself, the redemption of a needy person, becomes an advocate in court for someone. Job wanted someone to take the witness stand on his behalf to clear his name against accusations. When you lose your name, your good reputation, I imagine you feel as if you have lost everything. Before the Redeemer with the capital R appeared, you and I might have been called upon to be Redeemers. In fact, some scholars might say that the capital R made you and I believe that we are less responsible for our sisters and brothers when they cannot fight or even pray for themselves. It relieved us of answering a cry. We might have been called to stand up for someone when everyone else was against them. We might have been called to plea for them before God. Yet we still have Job's. The question is, how many redeemers do we have? Some of you may recognize the following story from a book called Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption by Brian Stevenson, a young human rights lawyer and social justice advocate. When Brian Stevenson first met Walter McMillan, a modern-day Job, Walter was on death row waiting to go to trial for murder. It was highly unusual for someone to be placed on death row before even going to trial. It is particularly a cruel place. In Alabama, it meant being locked up in a five by eight foot cell for 23 out of 24 hours, with temperatures reaching over 100 degrees during the summer. But Walter was a black man charged with killing a white woman in Monroeville, Alabama in 1987. There were some people who judged his flaws to be great enough for him to suffer immeasurably. Before his crime, Walter had actually earned more respect and admiration from local whites than most other blacks because he owned a pulpwood business. He was married and had three children. But Walter admitted to having flaws. Sometimes he drank too much or he got into a fight he was also a ladies' man. His most dangerous flaw was that he had began dating a married white woman. The woman's husband discovered the affair and made it public, and shortly after that, Walter was charged with a murder he could not have possibly committed. Three witnesses testified against Walter, including a familiar jailhouse snitch and another man suspected of a murder himself. Multiple witnesses, black and white, pastors, neighbors, and relatives testified that Walter was at a church fish fry at the time of the crime and that they were there with him. Nevertheless, Walter's trial lasted just a day and a half. The jury sentenced Walter McMillan, our modern-day Job, to life in prison. And the judge did something rarely done. He overrode their verdict and sentenced Walter to death. The judge also obviously believed Walter's flaws made him deserving of infinite suffering. Walter needed a redeemer with a small R. He needed someone to vindicate him, an arbitrator, 
Like Job, he had lost everything, his business, his income, his reputation, his wealth, his family, his freedom. Attorney Brian Stevenson had already decided to be a goel in this lifetime. He devotes his life to fighting for the convicted and the condemned. He is a redeemer. At their first meeting, Walter told Stevenson, Mr. Brian, I know it may not matter to you, but it's important to me that you know that I'm innocent and didn't do what they said I did, not no kind of way. I'm sure I'm not the first person on death row to tell you that I am innocent, but I really need you to believe me. My life has been ruined. This lie they put on me is more than I can bear, and if I don't get help from someone who believes me, he couldn't finish. His lips quivered, and like Job, he cried out. Over time and through investigating, Brian Stevenson proved that the state's witnesses had lied on the stand. He also showed that the prosecution had illegally suppressed evidence. Walter's conviction was overturned in 1993, and he stepped out into freedom. Once during an, interv during an interview by a film crew, Walter offered, they put me on death row for six years. They threatened me for six years. They tortured me with the promise of execution for six years. I lost my job. I lost my wife. I lost my reputation. I lost my dignity. Then he sobbed violently. The Lord gave Job back his family and fortune. Walter got his freedom, but he never fully regained his good name because some people refused to believe he was innocent. And this pained Walter for the next 10 years that he lived. Today, I side with the scholars who believe Job was speaking of a redeemer with a small r when he cried out. Human beings had failed Job, but he knew that it was possible to have a goel. He had faith that God would give him a flesh and blood redeemer. What Job did not know is what Christians believe today that one day the ideal person would be born, both human and divine, a Christ who would live and die for us, a redeemer with a capital R. But I think Job cried out for someone like Brian Stevenson, a redeemer with a small R. We pass people every day who are in need of a redeemer, a goel. There are people who need someone to stand in the gap, to stretch out their arms and be the bridge between them and God or them and whatever they believe, between them and their community. Someone smaller than Jesus, someone they can see and touch, someone to pray for them when they have lost faith. We are all called to be redeemers. We do not have to leave everything up to God. In fact, God depends on us. We possess everything we need to be a goel. Most often this means serving our neighbor or the stranger in some way. It calls for a physical action. To be the vindicator for strangers. To be an umpire for those who are despised. Right now, we are being vindicators for Job. He wanted his words to last forever. 
By reading the book of Job and recounting the story, we are the answer to Job's cry. We are assuring his story of faith lives on, etched in our hearts. He pleaded his story remain forever to say, there are times when those who hit rock bottom need us as much as they need God. They need the Redeemer, who is the Goel. You were born to be a Goel in this world that is both, both spiritual and physical, and thus a world that needs Redeemer with the capital R and Redeemer with the small r. Amen. Thank you.